you want edgy, not dodgy. And Ooh. I was like, you no. Know? And I was like, that's brilliant. Because that is what I say now to my friends or to my young friends, especially. I'm like, there's such a difference. Like, of course, edgy is cool. Like, dodgy is a whole other thing, a whole other kind of beast that you don't want. This week, I have a conversation with Leona Nice, and she recently released a record called Brudex, which has a great antidote about the title, which she didn't tell in this, and I want to tell you in a second, but you might recognize her song Charm Attack. It came out in, I think, maybe 2000, so in the early 2000s. So basically, she needed a name for the record. She had this collection of songs and she happened to be reading the New York Times and she read this article about cicadas and there's this mythic, thrilling quality to cicadas that I didn't know about. Maybe you do, but basically they only emerge after about a decade and a half where they spend their time underground, developing, growing, and then they emerge and emit a sound unlike anything else on earth. And so midway through making this record in 2021, she, you know, needed the title and she read this article and it's called Brood X because this family of cicadas that was due to emerge along the East Coast, also where she is, she's in New York, and they were emerging for the first time since 2004, which is the same year she'd released her last album. And in the years since, she's been processing a lot. She very sadly lost both of her parents and she became a mother and prepared for motherhood. And she's been underground herself in a way, nesting and growing her family, and after 17 years, Brood X, the album about emergence and rediscovery, is out now. And it's really great, and and she's really great. I loved talking to her. We spoke about the music industry when she was young and what it was like when her hit song came out and what the music industry was like back then for her specifically. And we talk about her processing grief and... We talk about her creative process and processing in general. And anyway, here's that conversation. Thank you so much for being here. If you still want to join in process and you didn't get a chance, email me and we'll make that happen. If you don't know what that is and want to, the link is in the show notes. Here is my conversation with Leona. You're not in the same city or the same room even. And so she says that, you know, people can kind of be a little bit more loose when they're not thinking about, you know, how they look or someone looking at them. But I think to your point, it's more so just the Zoom, like looking at yourself is so discombobulating. And I, I 
I don't really like. So no, I mean, I think that was the whole problem with for my kids too. Like when they were doing the school stuff, like they were just staring at their faces, and you're so kind of aware. I mean, you're just not supposed to be staring at yourself in a class. Yeah, even in the meeting when you're talking to your friends, like when you're zooming with friends, you're like, am I supposed to be looking at the fact that I've got like dark circles under my eyes? <laughs> no. Anyway, yeah, it's distracting. It is distracting. So just like a quick, well, it's so funny because I think the last person that you interviewed and I'm, I, my memory is getting worse and worse, but I think I did for Lynn. Is it Chen? Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she made a film called Saving Face. And yeah. They commissioned me to do Love is Strange, a uh, version of it. I think so. I'm pretty sure. Um, it was a while back, but I was trying to look for it. But I, I think I'm on that soundtrack. <laughs> oh, my God. That's <laughs> so I, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm like, such sure funny. I, I, it trick, I, I, yeah, I have done so many things in my, my life. I've been around a while. Um, and I've had a long career. And so I really w- don't want to confirm that because if it's not the case, it's going to be embarrassing. But I, yeah, it was weird. Cause I was like, the, I looked at it and I was like, Oh, I remember that movie. Oh, I think I have a song in that movie. Oh so, yeah. That's so cool. So such a small world. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's so cool. Well, thank you so much for being here. And, you know, like I said, before we started, it was so nice spending time with your music and reading about you and you seem great. And I'm, I'm really happy to, to get to talk to you. Well, thank you. That's so nice. You seem great too. (laughs) Well, well, how are you? So you're, you're in New York, I think, right? Is that where you still live? Yes. I'm in New York City. Um, I'm hiding in my kids' room because it's the quietest one in the ha- in the apartment. Um, I live very close to the FDR, so it can get pretty loud. And there's a lot of hospitals near me. So there you go. You oh yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, Do I need to go into it. Closet? I no, 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 no. This is this is a very casual situation. I, I moved here from New York, and so I'm very used to the. Oh, where uh, are you? I'm in LA now. Oh, that everybody does that move. <laughs> well, yeah, my mine wasn't planned really. I just I was missing a winter in New York in 2020, and I was happened to be here and never never came back. <laughs> do you like living in LA? I do actually. I really really love it. I I don't know if it. I only know it through having moved here in the you know, beginning of the pandemic and then just kind of stayed And my, my world seems very small in my little neighborhood, but, and I have so much more to see, but I, I'm really grateful. I, I really, which I part really of LA it. are you in? I'm in Highland park. Okay. That's so funny. I have so many, it's kind of the place. I mean, in like, I think it's just, it's like a lot of artists are there, a lot of musicians and, um, I guess it's, it's, it's really, it's very East, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Northeast LA. Yeah, did you live here before New York? No, I, I've never lived there, but I've worked there a lot. Um, I've made records there and spent, you know, like maybe three months at a time and stay, you know. So I know it well, I would say, but never with the intention of living there. So it was always kind of, you know, like oh, I'm in LA. <laughs> you know, I like I like a I like a season I like seasons so I'm not sure I think it would I would but I guess you do have seasons there yeah not not really it's it's oddly raining today but what's funny is 
it's so challenging to tell time here because there's no markers of like, when will I'm always like last summer, but it could be like February. <laughs> it's really bizarre. But it's funny that, that you brought up LA because I wanted to start with this moment that I heard you talk about or I read about and in, in something when I was preparing for this, which happened here in LA, I think. But you you talk about this this really intense moment. I I honestly haven't stopped thinking about since I I heard you talk about it. I think it was at the El Rey Theater here in LA yeah. where someone came up to you that that worked with you, either a manager, manager. manager. Yeah. And and it, this was right, I'll I'll let you tell it, but what I heard was it was right before you were about to go on stage and play to an audience. <laughs> and yeah. this person came up to you and well I'll just I'll just let you tell it from here. Well, so um, when I started, and this was my first record, it was a very different climate to what the music world is now and seen. And when I started, um, I got signed. It was a very big sign at the time. Um, so there was a lot, a lot of pressure. So obviously, the more money that they spend on you and give you, the record label um, expects, a, you know, for you to do well and um, make the money back. I was not under the radar. I was definitely on the radar. And I had this crazy luck in some ways too, because I, my song that was Charm Attack, which was the first single, was went on the wait button when, say, a radio... So someone was calling, I think it was like Interscope or Universal at the time. My song Charm Attack was on rotation on their kind of... You know, I don't know what it's called. You know, when you're waiting to speak to someone. Yeah. Uh, like the hold song. Yeah, the hold button. Oh, how like, how was that chosen? Just it to- well, no, because I was signed to them. So they just had a playlist oh, of their releases, right? So so I think what happened was someone from a high, like one of the you know, biggest radio stations, I think in LA was either K-Rock or something like that. They were on hold. And my song was playing and that's why it got added very early. Like it was before we were ready to release it. And so the record was kind of on a, had a much later release date and K-Rock were one of those stations. And I'm not quite sure. And I don't want to get like called out for it, but started playing the song before we were even ready. And they were playing it in high rotation. And, you know, at that time, it was one of those radio stations that would literally dictate to all of the radio stations around the country. And so like, I, you know, we were not prepared and it was something like, Oh my God, we gotta, we've got to like get this record out because all these stations are putting it on. And and it was, you know, starting to kind of get a lot of momentum, but we weren't prepared. We had no video. We had not, you know, not the record wasn't ready. And, but, you know, it's like, you cannot, you know, an opportunity like that comes once in a lifetime, as Eminem said, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it was great, but it was a little scary. And then basically I had the show and I was only, I was opening for Travis at the time because I was, like I said, I was, I was an unknown. I hadn't released anything and they were, I, he would, they were headlining. I was opening, it was a packed house and the record had not even come out. My manager comes up to me and he was definitely, he was a great manager in some way because he had a lot of power, but he didn't have a lot of sensitivity, I would say. And he was pretty (laughs) clumsy. And I was a very, and still am a sensitive 
I don't take very well to, you know, this, this isn't going well. You know, I need a lot of like, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, And he came up to me right before I was going on and said, so just so you know, um, K-Rock just stopped playing the song. So that means all of the radio stations are going to stop because they, and that, by the way, I say K-Rock, I don't know if it's, but anyway, it's something like that. I remember like, it was just such bad timing. And it was like, he almost like, it was like, he told me that my career was done before it had even begun. Right. It just like it took all the wind, you know, I, by the way, I always get sayings wrong. My husband laughs at me. I'm like the wind out of my sail. I don't know. Yeah, that seems That's right. right. I, I do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, He laughs at me all the time. He's like, don't just don't even try. OK, please don't even try. Yeah, that happened to me. I was pretty young. I mean, now people are really young in this business, but I was maybe 20. 23, 24, maybe 23. Um, and yeah, I just was like, what? Um, yeah. And I had to go on stage with the feeling that I'd already blown it. <laughs> and oh. uh, yeah. Wow. So, I'm so that sorry fun. that happened. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like this, this person probably great at their job in many ways, bedside manner, Bedside matter room, not, not so much that that's a conversation for the the next day or later or you know not at all and maybe I don't know but wow I, I do you remember that show do you remember getting on stage how did you soothe yourself um, after that a good question I don't remember the show it's almost like a childhood before the age of like six like a lot of that tour and a lot of that year feels like little dreams and little flashes and actually i will run into people that were either you know like either people that were on tour with me and they'll tell me stories and i'm like i don't remember that i don't remember that and i'll be clearly in the pro in the picture and clearly in the story and i'm like what how <laughs> i thought that only happened to people you know, with trauma in their, like, you know, when they're kind of really young, you know, when they're under the age of 10, but apparently it could also happen to you when you're in your twenties. And it's not that it was like full trauma, but it just feels like a blur, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and it was fun, but it was also a lot because it happened very quickly. You know, I, I was in college and I was doing shows in New York City at like the bitter end. I was going, I went to NYU and the whole time I was doing, I was a co-check girl at Nels, which made me a lot of money because I used to put like 10 coats on one hanger and then pocket like $9. Please don't tell the people that own that place, but it was a good racket. And then I got a gig at the bitter end at like 6 p.m. on a Sunday which is not a great slot because at that time there was no phones. No one was filming me. I could have time to be really bad for a long time and then get okay. And then start to get better and better without really anyone having any footage of it, which I'm, I feel very grateful for. And I feel very sorry for people these days that are not allowed that grace period. Um, yeah. And, uh, but I, but I got signed, like, I would say, oh, weeks after I graduated because I worked through my whole time in university. And when my friends were 
having a lot of fun. I did have fun, but I had like laser focus um, to my, to the music. And pretty much from the age of 14, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And I was going to do it. Yeah. I wish I had that <laughs> now. It's harder. I had this blind, wouldn't say ambition, but just belief in myself. And yeah. I think definitely when that incident happened, it was like, Maybe the first time that I really felt like the rug was pulled from under me, like at least music wise, I was like, everything kind of just was working and working, working. Like, I mean, I, I had been rejected and have been rejected in my life musically, but it was like the pretty much, it was a pretty steady climb. And in one sentence before my record was even out, it just felt like it was just poof, you know, you suck. (laughs) <laughs> that's I mean it's tough because it's like when we I, I mean I feel this way all all the time still and I'm I'm not that young but I think we're all pretty delicate and it's just like that one English teacher who said you're an okay writer could like change someone's life to make them a published author or a gym teacher telling you you're not athletic could make you like self-conscious, you know, there's all these little things that seep in. And especially when you're young and just in general, I think we're, we're like sponges, but I relate to, to what you said about the young confidence of, I, I look back at some of the old or just remember what I was like, you know, at a certain point in my life, even five years ago or 10 years ago. And I don't even recognize the like audacity. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, where did that, where did that go? The ambition or not even ambition, but like this, I think I'm going to do that. (laughs) Yeah. It's really wild. Yeah. It's um, some, a little bit of grit, a little bit of chutzpah, a little bit of like, it's like, I, I, you know, I was not good. I mean, so, um, if you, you know, I used to, <laughs> I used to sing in every, I, I auditioned for every school play. I never got the lead. I was always like a part that they would make up for like the kids that they, you know, weren't good enough. And I just thought I would go to every audition, even, I mean, sorry, every, every rehearsal, even the ones that I wasn't supposed to be at. And I just like, I don't know. And then at that time we didn't have recording devices. So I wasn't, um, people weren't filming me and then showing me how bad I was. And I think, God, I mean, yet again, I feel sorry for these kids these days that are just constantly having to see like what they look like and how they sound like, and then they have to judge themselves. I just didn't have that. And I, I, I luckily had very supportive parents that very low bar in their expectations for me or something because, you know, I was really not good at school. I was dyslexic. So I, you know, I always was that one that didn't want to answer the question and would get a lot of anxiety when it came to my turn to even say my name in class. Yet I would go and sing to the whole school, um, a Whitney Houston song. (laughs) (laughs) and you know get all dressed up and do that that's when it came to having to answer a math question it was like terror um yeah so I think that was another thing it's like I found my solace in this thing that I believed I would be or was good at one of the things I try to tell people or younger people now it's like if you want to do something 
you have to put in the 10,000 hours really like it, it seems to me now these days it's like soon as somebody writes a song they they're like 16 it's like well let's put it up you know and then and then it's like there's nothing behind it now obviously there's exceptions to the rule but you know you need a little bit of life experience yeah. there to uh, really deliver i think and of course there's exceptions to the rule yeah, I really, really, I mean, similarly terrible at math and in and, and school, but always auditioned for the plays and, and yeah. you know, and not, I don't want to um, make you too starstruck, but you are talking to a villager. Um, no one was cut in the production of Fiddler on the Roof um, <laughs> my so, sophomore year. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. no, no, that was like the height of my career. So, but there, yeah, I, I think it's important to, we all want to be seen and cared for. And, and I think, performance is is a way to to do that and anyway i i am just i'm happy that you you kept going and going back to to that time a little bit i heard you equate it to summer camp and i'm i'm curious what the industry was like for you back then and and how you see it compared to how it is now because i know you've spoken about how it was cool to basically not try and and now it that that's sort of changed in a way but you know even talking about your song charm attack and and writing that that album and it's funny we were talking about la because i I was listening to that song so much and obviously i listened to your new album too which i want to talk about and and i i love too but that song is so good and i like couldn't stop listening to it and it feels very much like an la song to me it, it's well, such I was a spending a lot of time in LA yeah it sounds like it a, um so I was at the time I was you know I was getting courted by many labels it's very funny too because um I mean this is like a human nature but you know I would do all these shows and it you know I wasn't getting any attention and then I think I went to like some grammy party with my stepmother and can you I, say who your stepmother is <laughs> ross and she and i went to a party and i was like you know everybody was there and it was like tommy um Matola was there or something and i was already doing i was already getting some attention like oh somebody someone from epic uh a high ranking so i'm not going to say names because pe- these people are still out there but um had you know was kind of like sniffing around that's like an expression you know like kind of like you know you know circling and then i went to i went to this sh- this after party he was there he met me and he's like i want to hear your music like you've got a look or something like call my office on monday or something like that and then i told the guy who was because obviously he ran sony but this guy was from epic which was in sony so it's like a label within the label and with like when i was like oh i just want to let you know that he wants me to call him that guy flipped out because he was like oh my god someone else wants her and then like within a week it was like there was like 10 labels that were like, wow, we want, you know, but like some of them probably didn't even like the music. It's just like this kind of, 
mentality of like, well, if that person wants it, I want it. You know, you know, we, we do that a lot with say, you know, with relationships or whatever. It's like, it's just part of our nature. But anyway, so I was going, I was spending a lot of time. I made my record. um, No, I made the record in the, in London actually, but I was going out there a lot. um, And I did actually end up signing to Outpost, which is based in LA. And, um, oh man, it was such a cool time. I think about it, but also I was just like, songs were just kind of bursting out of me at that time too, because I was, I'd written already hundreds and hundreds of songs. And if I look at notebooks and I still have them, my writing is so bad. <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing that not, not in Charma Talk, I feel like it is one of my people say that all the time. Songwriters like, it kind of came through me. I kind of do believe that to some degree, because there's so many times where it's just, nothing comes out that's smart and interesting. And then sometimes it's just like the timing, the emotion, the location, it all kind of like it hits and it's just like, boom, you know? Yeah. Whoa. That's so, wow. It's, it's really cool to hear about. I I think you said that your first two albums are really about unrequited love was, was making art about what you were I'm assuming maybe it's not, but was it's always what I'm going through. It's I yeah (laughs) never it's never like and I said this before. Like I remember in in you know I've had very long periods of time where there's just nothing you know like a writer's block and people will be like, well Bob Dylan says you have to write every day. It's a muscle and you know if you have nothing going on with yourself, then, you know, go and read a newspaper or read a book and write about the character in the book. And I'm like, I just feel like for myself, I would never be able to write a song as now I could, and I say that, but I could, I could definitely, if I knew somebody personally and I connected them, I could probably write about them. And, but I, I, you know, I need to really feel the feeling to write, I think, a good song and i've and i've called it in many times not on my not songs that are on my record but like you know i've you've probably heard one hundredth of the songs i've written there's so many and uh they're sitting somewhere but but um they always come from a place of a strong feeling um yeah um, i remember once asking myself this question like okay, I could choose between being happy, really happy and not writing another song ever again, or having, you know, pain, you know, not all the time, but being in pain, maybe half the time and being like an incredible artist. And it's a really hard question to answer because of course, part of me feels that my happiness is connected to the fact that I'm an artist. So could I be happy if I wasn't an artist, you know, mm. most of the songs do come from an element of pain. So I don't know. It's a hard yeah. one. I think. Yeah. I, just <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's just part of the the creative process is that it's cyclical and, and seasonal and, and you like seasons. And I, and I think, you know, everything that I connect with is, and there's a, there's a Bowie quote about this too, of, uh, not second guessing an audience and being really selfish about the work and making something 
for you. And I think, I think the people, the work that I connect most with usually is, is the work that's incredibly specific, but in that specificity, you can relate and you can, you know, it's funny, like this song, it was released in 2000 and you probably wrote it a, a bit before that, but I have the lyrics pulled up right now. And like I said, I've, it's a jam and I've been listening to it so much. And it's so funny because the, and, and you of course don't have to, to tell me about this and I want, we're going to get right into your new record, but I'm, I'm like, no, I'm happy to. I feel like this, I feel like all my music is still like a very, very secret thing. Like in some ways I feel grateful that I never really, I never became successful in the way that you would consider success. And therefore, I've never been a has-been, which is also like I feel fortunate for because uh, it's like I have all these songs and Charm Attack. Yeah, I'm very proud of that song. It's like kind of a perfect pop song. And when I say perfect, it's like to me, The, the Cure is like the, the they're like the best at a pop song because they're the lyrics are are thoughtful and they're not just throwaway and they're original, but you can like get up and feel happy to. And that's kind of what Charm Attack's intention or what it became was what it was or is. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is like Gen X music is, is the best music. And it, this song is like, so the music that I love from the nineties. I'm curious if this was like written about a specific person in mind, or if it was kind totally. of like a general, well, it's totally a story about this person. And all the people that I looked up to that were songwriters were very, very personal. And you, one of those was Sinead O'Connor, which I've talked about before, which was like, when I first heard the line, the Cobra, I was like, oh my God, she's so honest. Like, it's so specific. And I, I don't know if you just saw the, I just saw the Nothing Compares to You docu- documentary, which is, by the way, I'd highly recommend. I'm also very good friends with John Reynolds, who was actually her husband at the time. And they walked in with, I do not want what I have not got, which has got Nothing Compares to You into the record label. And they're like, there's no way we're releasing this. It's too personal. No one is going to want to hear this. Like nobody. And of course it became like the number one record of, I I can't remember what year it was, but I think it was 1990. I think when you start to listen to a a room full of executives about music, that's when it starts to fall apart. So that um, I've always tried in Charm Attack, why I, I do still love it is because not one lyric is a throwaway lyric. Like every single part of that is absolutely what I was going through. And it was, and it just, it was written in uh half an hour. The sentiment of the song and just the charmer, like I, I could, it could be about people in my life, several, like, it's like, it's so it's still, you know, came out in 2000, it's 2022 when we're recording this and yet still tracks basically. There are a few songs that I cannot listen to. And a lot of it was because I was signed to a big label and I was still pretty young and I still didn't believe in my Sell like my opinion, or I thought people knew more than me. And I always had this feeling like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. And I, God, that's a thing. Like, it's very hard at that age, you know. And there are people out there, I'm, you know, there are there, and those are the artists that stay around are the ones that from the beginning, they're just stick to their guns, you know, they don't 
sway. And I was definitely a swayer in that you could, I don't know if manipulate, but bully maybe. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Sprout Living. You know Sprout Living. You love Sprout Living. Maybe you don't. And if you don't, I'm going to tell you about them right now. They are plant-based protein powders. And as you probably know, protein powder typically tastes pretty bad, pretty chalky, pretty gross. And honestly, a lot of times it has ingredients that are fillers and and gums and thickeners and natural flavoring, which I learned from this advertisement that natural flavoring is really not that natural and it's kind of intense if you Google it. So basically, Sprout Living uses none of that. They avoid any unnecessary additives and they make a product that tastes incredible. It truly is very good and I enjoy drinking it and eating it. You can even bake with it. They use real superfoods, adaptogens, nootropics, and that's great because, you know, I like to multitask. I like something multifunctional. It's more than just a protein powder. And that's great because it creates convenience, cost savings, and of course, less waste. These are all things that that we enjoy here at Let It Out in this family. Their Epic Protein Pro Collagen Blend, for example, can boost your body's own production of collagen. And they have a matcha, a mindful matcha blend that contains ingredients to help boost mental clarity, focus, memory, things that I need in spades. Sprout Living is here for you. You can taste the difference and you can taste the thoughtfulness. You can taste the purity. You know what? I'm even going to have the founder on here to tell you more. So tune in very soon to hear from them. That's exactly why I wanted to partner with them because they are considering their attention to detail and I feel confident to recommend it to my friends, you. They even have a coffee one that tastes like you know, like a really nice coffee drink and a chocolate maca that tastes like chocolate milk. You understand. So check them out. It supports the show. It supports your day. If you use the code, let it out, you can get 20% off your order. Again, that's code, let it out for 20% off your order with Sprout Living. Thank you so much, Sprout for your plant-based protein. Some of it has caffeine, some of it doesn't. There's a matcha with coconut milk and ginger and, you know, nootropics and ashwagandha, lion's mane. Again, let it out for 20% off your order. Thank you, Sprout Living. Love you. It had to be hard to to be that young and and to have the conviction to, to speak up and to know, and I completely can can understand that. And I'm so glad that you feel about Charm Attack, that you love it still. And the thesis of, of that song to me, my interpretation is, you know, it's, it's about sort of this cool, aloof, charming person. I've been thinking a lot about cool versus warm, right? Like I have just had to accept that I am warm and I'm not going to be, you know, this mysterious, aloof sort of person that I, I kind of ad- admired. And I feel like what we were talking about, about the 
music industry back then about like not wanting to try and that being so uncool. And then, you know, this has come up on, on this podcast recently before too, where it's like when you make something, you have to now tell people about it. And that kind of goes against our thinking of, you know, Oh, well, it's so uncool to do that. It's like, well, you got to kind of do it. Or it's like, and, and just accepting, I, I am warm in my case, like I'm Midwestern. And I heard you talk about how your mom in you, you mostly grew up in London and your mom, I, I think is Swedish, right? And, and That's her, yeah. her warmth was challenging with the posh Brits. And so I just feel like it's sort of been a through line everywhere from your song charm attack to, you know, your experience in the, the, the music industry or early on. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm curious, have you moved into your warmth now? And like, where are you on the like cool versus warm spectrum? I was raised with my mother telling me, cause she came from a different time. She was very elegant. Her father was a diplomat for Sweden. So they would move every four years. So she was kind of grew up to be like a lady. And she would tell me that mystery is good, right? Like mystery is attractive. And I still, I do believe that being very discreet. And it's very hard to change that when it's like how you feel. I was raised at a time when all the artists that I was listening to and looked up to, they never did interviews and they were shy and they were awkward. So it's very hard now because you know, that's definitely not going to get you anywhere. <laughs> Maybe we'll go back to that. Most recently, or in the, in the last several years, you were making money by making music under a pseudonym, which took the pressure off from what we're talking about of, of, of having to be cool. And, and you were, you know, selling music to be used in things. And, and you said something that stuck with me. You, you said, you can spend so much time on something and you can make this joke track with a friend and that's the thing that becomes the biggest thing. <laughs> so, you know, th this new record that you made, Brood X, which I want to talk about, was, was the first in 17 years. And you've talked about it in terms where you said it really made itself. But can you talk about how the transition between making music under a pseudonym to working on this personal record? Well, the thing that was great is my friend, um, one of my best friends, he's a photographer and also like he, uh, he was, he's a fashion photographer and he lives in London and he would get commissioned to do these commercials and they wanted music for it. And I had this kind of in because he's like, okay, this is what they want. And a lot of people are going to submit music, but I'm just going to root for you. And he's like, they want, you know, they want it to be like a French 60s vibe. And like, this is awesome. It's so fun because it's so cheesy. And like, there's no pressure on anything. You're just like, okay, they love it. Great. It's not, it doesn't have my name on it. And I mean, it's probably gotten more hits than my own music. That's the funny thing. I mean, it really just like puts in things in a perspective of like when we overthink things or we get too, too kind of precious about something, we kind of start to ruin it. I, I definitely don't think this is my best music, but it probably did. People are not as snobby as I am, you know? So 
sometimes we're making music for ourselves and then we forget about the rest of the world. But that was so fun. It was so fun because it just didn't matter. When you put your own name on something, it's, it's like you have a responsibility to yourself. I heard you say that you equate laziness to fear. Can you talk about that? And do you think that was related and, and why you took such a hiatus from making music under your own name? Being shy and being kind of like, oh, it's also like another form of, you know, you're so self-involved. Like people are really concerned with themselves, you know? And I, I try to say this to my kids now because they're like, oh, this person, you know, I did this today and everyone's laughing. And I'm like, no one remembers it. Like they're all stressing about what happened to them, you know? And I think that it's an important lesson to learn that we're all like, the stars of our own story and everyone else is kind of co-stars and like you and maybe you assume that you're a star to someone else's story but you're not and while they may think about something stupid you did or said for about 10 minutes or 10 seconds they're already back to thinking <laughs> what, what about what they're doing and what they look like and what they think and you're back to being a small role on there story but it's hard because you have to live with yourself so you should have a little humor behind what you do and try to not be so tough and this whole social media stuff is really hard um i wish it didn't exist but at the same time i wouldn't be here with you now and also it does give me this chance to make a record without anybody being involved with all those records before there was a lot of people, not that I had to get approval from, but there was many people that would have an opinion and that they had maybe put money into the project because they were a label or a manager or a publisher or a producer or a mixer. And it's like by the end of the project, the edges have all been rounded off, you know. So that's a lot of the reason why I shied away from even approaching a label, which of course now I'm kind of regretting because... I didn't realize how hard it was to get the music heard without a machine behind you. It's challenging. And I'd love to talk about creative process and, and your lessons on, on creativity. And well, I'd love to talk about this apartment on Mott Street that I heard you speak about where you began writing a song and it just sounded like such a creative environment. Could you tell me about it? When I signed my deal and I also signed a publishing deal, got a chunk of money. The first thing I did, well, one of the second thing I did, because the first thing I did was buy a beautiful Gretsch guitar that was like from the 1950s, um, which my husband broke, stepped on the neck and I went to kill him for it. The second thing I did was I bought myself an apartment on Mott Street and it's a studio apartment. It's got a little garden and it's tiny, but it's, so quiet and it's very womb-like. I bought it right before my dad died. So it was like 2003. My mother was an interior designer. So she helped turn it into a beautiful place. Like we mirrored a lot of it because it was so small We to make it like bigger. And then we put a lot of warm colors in it. And I lived there for a bit and then my father died and I moved back to London and I was living with my mother and I wanted to be close to my family. And so I would then I would then kind of 
let people stay in my apartment that I knew and they would pay me, you know, just like it would be more like friends of friends. And there was just like a steady stream of artists that would be living there. Like Sia lived there for a while. There were just many incredible artists that lived in my apartment. And it kind of became this thing because my business manager at the time also, you know, look, he looks after a lot of incredible artists. So then I'd be like, okay, um, my apartment is available. Do you have anybody that wants to rent it? And so I kind of had this feeling that this place was only <laughs> um, let creative people stay there. Cause when I did have one person that was like in banking, stay there, they were like the most disgusting, actually, weirdly, everyone has this idea that musicians are like so badly behaved, but I will say that bankers are worse. <laughs> so then I had the apartment for a while. I, I came back to New York. I had just met my got, I just kind of met my husband that I have now that I have now that my husband and, um, very quickly, I got pregnant. I just, um, I've been on tour for my, you know, for seven years straight, basically, and doing records and touring and doing records. And I, I just had had, I'd had it. And so I decided to follow my heart and I jumped right, right in and got pregnant pretty quickly. And I was working with my favorite person, Jason Chrisell, who I still work with. And we were in my apartment on Mott Street still living there, but I was pregnant and I was kind of living half there and half with my now husband. And we wrote the beginning, the verse of the beginning. I wrote the lyrics and it was all about, you know, this like, what am, what's going to happen to me? Like I've only ever been a kid. I never was a grown up. I went straight from being in college to being on tour. And I don't know if most people, and you know, when you're a a musician on tour, you're like a child. I mean, you literally have your schedules put under your door every night and you wake up at 11 because you don't have to be at soundcheck till four. And then you get like money, given money every day to like, and it's just like, the <laughs> it's the best, but it's not like you don't even do your laundry. You go to a laundromat and put it there and so I went from that to suddenly being pregnant and I was like, oh my God, what is going to happen? I had no idea. I'd never looked after a little baby. I did. I was kind of the youngest. I mean, I did have little brothers, but they were kind of living in a different house from me when they were kids. So I didn't even know how to change a nappy and suddenly I was pregnant. So the song is all about like, oh my God, what is going to happen? But I had this song in my kind of, I recorded it and I loved it and I would play it for people, you know, through the years, like just to remind myself that I still had this thing that I, you know, that this like secret weapon or this superpower, because sometimes you forget, you know, you have kids and you're like, okay, that's it. That's all I'm good for. And so when we, when it came to Brudex with Max Cook, I wrote, a few songs with him in the studio. And then we kind of sat down and I was like, okay, I have this song that I love. And I played them the beginning and, he, and he's like, I feel like it needs a proper chorus. Like I think the chorus was just like an instrumental. And so the chorus, and that was the last song we did was the chorus is like the answer to the question that I had 12 years ago when I was in that apartment going, what is it going to be like? Like, is it over for me? Like, is that it? Am I done? Am I just going to be like, 
pureeing food and hanging out with the moms, talking about my kids <laughs> all the time and forgetting about myself. And yes, for a long time, that was the case. And that is why I didn't make a record. Like I, there's no way there was no room in my life to even pick up a guitar. Like, I don't think I picked up a guitar for eight years. I mean, really the commercials were really kind of towards the end of that experience. I just was so paralyzed by the responsibility I had. I also had two kids very quickly back to back and that wasn't intentional, but you know, nature is nature and that happened and I just was overwhelmed. And then my mom got very sick pretty quickly after my second child was born um, with Alzheimer's. And I was in New York and my whole family was in London. I didn't really have anyone to help me. I had help, like paid help, like I would pay someone to help me when I needed it, but I didn't have any family and I didn't have anybody to teach me how to be a mother and didn't know. So I just was like, there was no option of me going and making a record. That sounds like a lot. Well, do you still have that apartment? I do. I'm, I rent it out. You know, maybe one day my kids will, I mean, they won't be able to live there together because it really is like it. I don't even know how a couple could live. I mean, no, a couple could live there. Um, <laughs> I, well, be, I was just out. I live in a... Love. You'd have to be very in love. There's no, there's no like other room to go to other than the toilet. <laughs> yeah. I live in a studio here and I but alone, but <laughs> I get it. It sounds like, it sounds like a special place. I'd love your greatest lesson on timing because I read that one of your albums came out the day before 9-11 and... Just thinking about, you know, one thing being different or sliding glass doors moment or, you know, do you, do you ever get caught up in that? And, and even what we were talking about in terms of these stories of what Richard Rohr calls like the second half of life, right? Like we see in the media, people in their 20s and then they get to a certain point and then it's like, what happens after that isn't shown as much. And I think that's changing a bit now, but where are you with, with timing and, and what has your, are you able to really let go and just be like, Oh, that wasn't meant to happen as I thought it was. It was meant to happen this way instead. Or do you hold well, on to things or what have you learned about that? Well, as um, I like the expression, it's a long dance. Um, and I try to tell that to my kids because we all think of things in a short term, but you know, like I said, the first record, I had that horrible news told to me, you know, and that kind of like was the beginning of the end for that record. That was like, so the timing on that was wrong. The fact that, you know, the radio station played the song before it was even out. Third record, the record label got sold or the label boss left or something like basically every single time. And I'll tell you this. I still think that there is a reason for all of that. And I do believe and I have to believe that at some point there'll be this like aha moment for my, for me and my music. And I'll go, Oh, that's why all those things happened because of this. And I don't know what that is yet, but I'm, I'm believing in that. And I feel that we should all feel that way because if you feel defeated, even though it's my second part of my life, you know, like, as you said, like, it's not my twenties, I'm in my forties. It's, you know, the second act, as you say, but I'm seeing so many women these days do even better things in their second half. And it's just so inspiring to see that I'm actually 
now excited that I'm not in my 20s as opposed to maybe a few years ago, I was embarrassed about not being in my 20s because I felt like who wants to hear from me, you know? And now I feel like, oh my God, of course people need to hear from me. I've had this full life. The The way that you talk about your mom is is really special. And I feel like she might have been a, a great example of, of aging. But I, I loved hearing you talk about her artist friends and her, you know, just like very coolly smoking and the way that she interacted with the world just just seemed so special. Can you tell me a little bit more about her and and what she taught you? I know she she's the one who bought you your first guitar, right? Well, you know, she was a complicated and complex person. I mean, there were things that were tricky, you know, she was heartbroken pretty much my whole life over my father, so that was you know, there was ups and downs with it, with all the music and laughter and like fun. There was also a lot of heartbreak and pain. And I think that she, but she always, I mean, she just gave the best hugs and the best tickles and we moved around a lot. Um, she always played music, um, which I'm grateful for. I was really lucky. And she would always sing, you know, she had that Swedish like, you know, and very lyrical when she talked. Her um, Argentinian, one of her best friends, Argentinian, is named Ricardo Ginali, and he's a painter and he used to play piano all the time. We had this piano that was always out of tune, so it always had this like, sounded like a saloon. There was just clouds of smoke all the time and, you know, it was at the time when everybody smoked and it was very European. I do feel like um, everybody's growing up in these sterile environments where the kids are dictating how the parents should be and who they should be. And the parents are like afraid of the kids. And I don't know. It's like, it's just very different. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have all those things. And we just People said what they said, and it's just, it was just very different. And um, I feel lucky that I grew up when I did, but she was just incredible. But it's taken me to be a mother to actually really appreciate her because I think I was very angry with her for a long time because she was very flawed. And because I was like, well, you know, I couldn't understand some of her behavior, but now I'm a mom and I sometimes see myself doing the things that she did that made me crazy. And I realized how hard it is, you know, to be a mother. You don't get like a book when you have a baby, like this is how you do it. This is how you raise a child. I think my father was my hero all my life, you know, and it drove my mother crazy. Like I just worshiped him. And then he died when I was only 29. And then he was even more of a hero. And it drove my mother crazy because she was there all the time for me. She was the one that came to all of my plays. All She was always there unconditionally. And he was more conditional. And of course, I, that was the reason why I always went for unrequited love. Like I Right. It's like what we were talking about. It, even with the... Yeah. Even with the the... Music executives, you know, it's the thing that when someone, when they're withholding, we want it more. It's like, what's that? No, I mean, it's really amazing what responsibility you have to your kids of like, how you love them is going to dictate like who they fall in love with. I mean, you don't even think about that stuff. It took her dying 
she died in such an unromantic way. It was eight years of like horrible Alzheimer's, couldn't move, couldn't talk. She didn't even know who I was. And really, when she died, there was just a, a lot of relief that she was no longer in that situation. So there wasn't even some huge climactic goodbye. It was just like, okay. And then it took a year and actually took her memorial, which we had in July. And weirdly, I had to make a speech and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And actually, I still to this day probably cry <laughs> three times a week about her because I wish I could have told her when she was alive that she was actually my hero because I always thought it was my father. But really, you know, now that I'm a mother and I'm, I am a woman and I'm the one that is mostly picking up the emotional pieces of my kids' lives, I feel like such a connection to her and such gratitude and also such empathy and sympathy and compassion for how hard it is to be all those things. Well. I'm so sorry for your loss of, of both of your parents and your dad tragically and, and your mom. And that, that's so beautiful and, and, and honestly really hitting me hard and inspiring because it, I have a similar dynamic with my so, so different situationally, but the, the dynamic between, you know, having yes. divorced parents and, and um. having, the, the similar dynamic with my dad and my mom and and I'm I'm not a parent and I I likely won't be but I'm gonna have to do some some conjuring because I it makes me emotional to even think about right now like I would say like honestly I mean my I really have regret around this because I I weirdly was always not I was never mad at my mom until the very end actually when I had kids because I I felt like God she really did so many crazy things and how could she have done them? But now that they're easy in some way, emotionally when they're five and four and five, but right now I'm in this crazy time where I've got an 11 year old and a 12 year old and they get complicated and they ask you questions and you don't know the answer to them. And, and sometimes you start, I, I see my mom in me and, and I hate it, but I also go, God, I just should have told her more like, Thank you. Because you don't know when people are going to go. You really don't. And my father's a prime example of that. You know, he fell off a mountain when he was climbing. It wasn't like his hardest mountain. It was just a day, you know, like a day trip. I think the one thing, one of the things I've learned from losing both parents, like I did, is that you got to tell the people that you love, that you love them because... You do not want to regret not telling them, <laughs> you know, that fight you have with somebody. If you love them, I mean, if they're an asshole and they don't make you happy and you don't need them in your life, get rid of them. And that's important. But there are people that we do have complicated relationships with and they might make us crazy. But if you do love them and you need them, then you got to make sure they know. Because you don't know what could happen. Yeah. Not to bum you out. No, but. I think it, this conversation is a real. It, it's making me feel grateful for my mom because, like I said, similar. I have a similar dynamic between my my mom and my dad, and and she's the one that's 
there all the time, but sometimes the one who's there all the time. Well, I had this thing that I said um, in when I made my speech for my mom's memorial. I used to write songs for my dad all the time, and my and and from the boys and guys, it broke my heart. And I never wrote one song for my mom. And I remember my mom would really get upset about it. And it took her dying and to me realize I was like, oh, I never wrote a song about you because you never broke my heart. So like all these people that were breaking my heart were getting songs written about them. But like the one person that didn't break my heart didn't get a song written about her. Like it was just so unfair, you know. And I think that's what parent parenting is. You might not get a lot of thanks from your kid mm. until they're at an age where they realize what you did for them, you know, because their job is to reject you. Their job is to think contrary to you and to think that you're like from another time and to want to be with their friends and to, be, you know, roll their eyes at you and to think you dress lame and to all the things that I'm dealing with right now. And I'm like, oh my God. It's interesting because it's kind of similar to relationship dynamics too. It's like we want the, or often, you know, and this is probably our, our one's trauma or one's, you know, relationship to their caregivers. And I've done enough, like, and I'm sure you have too, of like listened to enough self-help tapes about this, but it's like, we want the withholding person or the cool and aloof person and the person who, you know, is, is sometimes really there and wants to hang out all the time. And sometimes we don't hear from for months. And like, that's so much more attractive to us than the person who's like, you know, wanting to, to be right there or the collaborate or whatever, whatever. It's, it's, it's something I'm learning now of like going where it's warm instead of, you know, trying to, to You're fit into. You're still really young. You're still really <laughs> So, by the way, like you have, I mean, I didn't even, I didn't meet my husband um, till I was 33. And I, I have to tell, or 34 maybe. I mean, I'd met him, but I didn't get together. With him. But now hearing you say that, like, I was like that um, for a long time. And now, oh, I find those people so unattractive. <laughs> I find independent people attractive. I don't like needy people. I'm never going to be attracted to someone that is calling me all the time. Yeah. And like dependent on what I think or feel that's not attractive to me. But I will also not be attracted to someone that doesn't need me at all. As my therapist that got me through my father's death, uh, Bruce, who is no longer a therapist, and he's also in London, but he once said to me, because I had such a like I had this one guy that I loved so much and he slept with my best friend and it broke my heart into so many pieces. And I remember him saying, Leona, you want edgy, not dodgy. And I was like, no. And I was like, that's brilliant. Because that is what I say now to my friends or to my young friends, especially I'm like, there's such a difference. Like, of course, edgy is cool. Like you do not want boring you do not want super available all the time blah, blah, blah. but which is edgy right but dodgy is a whole other thing a whole other kind of beast that you don't want and that's someone that cheats or someone that is not honest and is going to break your heart and edgy is gonna maybe hurt you occasionally and drive you crazy which we all sadly probably need and like but you don't want dodgy. <laughs> yeah. Edgy, not dodgy. Oh, that's so good. Back to 
Bruce, like did any other pieces of advice that he gave you? I usually ask greatest lesson on romantic relationships, but that was, that was such a good one. But what have you learned? Cause you've been with your husband now for how many years? 14 years. Well, Bruce, God, I mean, he, you know, he also kind of never talked about the past, which I thought was good. I, I never, like we never rehashed my childhood, you know, he yeah. just was very much about like, okay, what is the, what is the, the task at hand right now? I think that's so good. I don't know how useful it is for me and my experience with therapy to like sit in my own shit. No, and it's just not, it's there. not, it's not, it's not because you know what it's, there's endless tape. Right, that, right. Exactly. And it just doesn't feel what? productive. It's not. And also like the blame, right? So Listen, I'm I'm a prime example of it. Like I'm fucking up right now with my kids, hundred percent, hundred percent. My daughter and my like my, my kids are both gonna have issues because of stupid stuff I say, and I'm aware of it. And it's so hard to stop myself. I mean, all I can do is apologize for it. But ultimately, sitting in therapy and talking about the time that your dad didn't come to see you in your school play or the time that your mother cried and didn't open the door, blah, blah, blah. It, it's not, I don't think it's helping you move into another space. So what, what Bruce would do, which was great, was like, he wasn't interested. I don't think he ever asked me about one thing from my childhood. We would just talk about whatever the situation was with, with now. And he was magic. Um, and I, I've tried to find somebody since then. And I've just given up because it's like a bad massage. It's like, it's worse than no massage. I would say a bad therapist is worse than no therapy. And I can tell within 10 minutes and I just went out of there. (laughs) Well, what about like with you, like what's your greatest lesson on romantic relationships? Like, is there, you know, a piece of advice that you've gone or just something that you've you've learned and and these last 14 years of this relationship or before that or in general so i had very bad advice from my father because he had three wives i mean he he had he was also an incredibly charismatic handsome um man and women loved him and he would say to me like as soon as it starts to get boring like get out <laughs> he was in love with the in love part and so he he literally had a 10 year span and then he was on to the next and he just couldn't handle the part that everybody gets to and I don't know anyone maybe there are people I think that usually they have to be in an un, a pretty unhealthy relationship to be in that place forever which is that is it going to happen is it not but once it gets comfortable he was out of there and he kind of gave me that advice like you deserve to always be like madly in love and the magic. And I'm like, that's not, that's just not realistic. And so what my advice is that I do think within a marriage, you do fall in and out of love with each other. And there are times where you probably go, this is really hard. I think my advice is most important thing to me, for me is someone that makes me laugh. My husband makes me laugh a lot. He drives me crazy, but he makes me laugh. Like, how'd you meet him? I met him, I met him on New Year's Eve in in like a party. And it was right before my dad died. I didn't remember meeting him. And I actually met him four years later, randomly in another city, in another country, 
And um, my friend was like, oh, he said he met you on New Year's in 2004. And I'm like, oh, I don't remember him. And we became friends. But he was not the kind of person I would normally go for. I had this type. That type was not working. I, I just think like, you know, how do you make God laugh? Like make a plan or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the the longevity thing is if there's still love there and you're still like laughing, then there's a way back to being in a, you know, it just ebbs and flows like everything. Yeah. The one thing my dad did say to me, which is good, which he's like, you should never need somebody. You should want them. Yeah. It's like there's, you know, to, to bring this all full circle, it's cyclical and there's seasons. There's winters of all those things you said, friendships, relationships, bodies, creativity, and there's summers and there's times to be loose and times to be tight. And yeah, well, it sounds like a, a great relationship. So is he edgy, not dodgy? <laughs> oh yeah. He's edgy. <laughs> he's not dodgy. He is who he is. And like, I never try to change. You can never change anybody. And I would say like, that's another thing. Like that makes me crazy when people like meet someone and they know who they are and then they try to change them. And that's just like, you know, was the charm attack guy edgy, not dodgy or dodgy, dodgy. and edgy. <laughs> it was dodgy. It wasn't even edgy. It was just dodgy. <laughs> that's what I was gathering. I was reading or listening to something when I was preparing for this. And you mentioned the LCD song, all my friends. And yeah. I, I don't remember exactly what you said about it, but the editor of the show, my friend Brie also went to Gallatin like, like you yeah. and, and she loves LCD and whatever you said about it really, I really liked. And, and I can't remember why you brought it up, but it was something related to growing up and change and which I think that song just so is. Do you happen to remember? First of all, just for your friend Brie, I was at their last show that wasn't their last show at the uh, <laughs> Madison Square Garden and actually was pregnant with my, my daughter. And she was, I was, she was like seven months. She was like almost baked. There was this line in the song, like, cause it's kind of about, I guess, partying with your friends, but there's this line like, this could be the last time. Like you always have like, like, let's like, let's go for it because this could be the last time when going to that show and it kind of doesn't make any sense anymore now because they, they now tour all the time. But it, <laughs> yeah. She just saw them. She just snuck in. <laughs> you know, but they, but at the, the time they were like, they were like the top yeah. of the game. And then they were like, we're done. Everybody there was like, for all we know, this could be the last time. And the whole room just went. <sighs> and, uh, and I was also, you know, pregnant. So I had that same feeling of like, okay, this is the last time. Time to grow up. Yeah, but. we love them in this family too, Brie and I. And that that song in particular, like I don't remember exactly what it was either, but I my memory of that song is being on a road trip with my my friend and her kids during the the pandemic. She she lives here now, but she lived in New York at the time. And the two of us took her two children and rented a, a camping van and went all over the the Southwest and and I would drive a little and she would drive a little. And I remember her putting that song on while I was driving and like reading off the lyrics to me. And it felt very much like she was like, she she's a, a bit older than me and has introduced me to so many things. And, and she was like, listen, this is about us leaving New York and like read the lyrics to me. It well, was like I very, mean, it's very sweet. Very, 
it's just like about the 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 twilight of your youth, I guess. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what she was getting at of like, yeah, yeah so kind of what we've been talking about too, moving to different phase. Yeah, exactly. So I was pretty crazy in my 20s. Um, and I don't regret that because now I can be boring and... Um, but also listen to a song like that, know exactly what's going on and understand it and relate to it. And I love that I have that experience. I didn't have that experience of my 20s at all. And I don't think that that's great because I, I kind of keep joking. I'm having the 20s and my 30s that I didn't have in my 20s because I didn't have them in my 20s, you know? Oh, so well, it's I like, I think we all have to... 30s too, don't worry. I wasn't <laughs> like, I, I don't... Listen, I mean... I was one of those people that never drank or did anything, even in college. Like I was really like really good kid. Um, my my sister and brother were pretty naughty, so it kind of like le- I leaned to the other. I leaned the other way, and I'm grateful for it. But yeah, I did start pretty old with everything, and I do think there's something to say for that because you're like still like the last one doing something, and you're like, oh shit, <laughs> I need to grow up. Well, I think we're just all on really different timelines and it's not, not with that stuff, but just generally like it, it more back to the LCD song, like it's out of our control and we just have to accept that like, this is the way it it happened this time around. And is there anything you wish that I would have asked you that you didn't get to say? No, I, I feel like you did a great job. I'm, I'm really, I really enjoyed talking to you. I really feel like you were listening. That means a lot. Thank you for asking me nice questions and not being a dick. (laughs) No, I mean, there's some, I listen to some and I'm like, what do you listen to? Um, okay. Hmm. Well, I like the Mark Maron one. I like Smartless. I love Conan O'Brien. I like the daily. I like, um, um, classics uh, i like desert island disc oh so good that's the best thank you so much for being here and everyone should listen to your new album it's i'm gonna explain more about it at the at the top but we we end by letting out a deep breath so can you do that with me real quick <laughs> yep inhale okay you did it <laughs> all right thank you so much <laughs> so much for listening all the way to the end listen to her new record listen to charm attack it is a jam and if you listen to bands playing with yassi salik i'm gonna call it a goddamn gorgeous beautiful song i've been listening to it on repeat and uh you know what it's uh stuck in my head i'll say that all right well i appreciate you being here i appreciate you listening i appreciate you just returning and allowing me and Bree, who works with me on this to, to do our best and to do the show i'm really really grateful oh and i wanted to say if you want to submit a question we have a form where you can do that because we're going to do a mailbag episode so i've already gotten a bunch of questions i'm answering some in the newsletter and i i send out a newsletter it's called the let it out letter i've been doing it for a really long time Um, before Substack or before I knew about Substack. So it's, yeah, it's called the Let It Out Letter. And it sends you these episodes too, as well as the show notes. If you want to want to get those, that would be cool. I kind of blend the format of 
perfectly imperfect and sometimes you know nick cave red hand files because i do mailbag um but brie's gonna come on and we're gonna do a mailbag episode at some point so send us your questions thank you for being here this podcast has its own instagram it's at let it out with three t's and in process in process is a workshop it's a group workshop that's in process <laughs> and i would love to have you if you still want to join no pressure but the link is in the show notes and it's it's really special and i'm really happy to be doing it and i would love to have you okay i think that's everything thank you again so much for being here and i'll talk to you next week love you bye